Please open your copies of God's Word. No, we're not going to be in Matthew this morning. We're going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Ephesians, specifically looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 this morning. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Today we're going to be considering a call and command from God himself in his word to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Before we hear from God in his word, would you join me in prayer one last time? Father, we thank you for this word which you have given us. It is good It is inerrant, it is infallible, it is sufficient for all life and godliness. You have said in it everything that you desire for us to hear from you. It is complete, it is final, it is authoritative, and we praise you for it. We pray now that as we hear this word, that you would help us. Help us in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds to... Receive it as exactly that. As sweeter than honey on our lips. Help us to cherish it. Help us to love it. Help us to hold it dear and never let it go. Father, we pray that you would change us through it. That you would sanctify us through it. That as we hear the words of Christ, that you would help us to look more like Christ. We pray all this... For your kingdom and for your glory. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the infallible word of Almighty God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this word of our God will stand forever. May he bless the reading and the hearing of it this morning. Amen. Now since we haven't been going through Ephesians, the the, the first thing we want to do is is locate ourselves in some proper context uh, since we're starting halfway through a letter uh, which, you know, Paul intended to be read in its entirety. Paul does exactly that for us with the very first thing he says. He uses a helpful key word there, therefore. Uh, And as one of my old mentors and ministers used to always tell me, when you see the therefore, we should always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? It is, it's beckoning, beckoning us to look back to what came before. As Paul has done in the majority of his letters, he lays out doctrine in the earlier portion of his letter, tells you this is what you should believe, and then as he begins to transition into the latter half of his letters, he always gives us application. It's as though Paul says, here is what Christ has done for you, Now, brothers and sisters, this is what you are to do for him. This, therefore, in chapter 4, verse 1, serves as that transition point in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. He has given us, in chapters 1 through 3, orthodoxy. And now, from chapters 4 through 6, gives us, so to speak, orthopraxy. 
proxy. This is what you should know. Now this is what you should do. And so what has Paul wanted for us to know? If we can summarize three chapters of a Pauline epistle quickly. uh, In chapters 1 through 3. Those three chapters are all about the doctrine Paul wants us to have. And it's especially as Presbyterians, as good Reformed Calvinist Christians, uh, it's a good few chapters. Uh, This is probably the Presbyterians' favorite three chapters, Ephesians 1 through 3. It is all about God's sovereignty. It's all about what Christ has done for us. Paul tells us there in those first three chapters that we have been giving been given everything, so to speak, in Christ Jesus. At least everything that matters. We have been unconditionally chosen by the Father from before even time began. Wrap your mind around that one. Before there was an earth, before there was space, before there was time itself which we could quantify, you, brother and sister, were chosen by the Father. You were then particularly specifically, exclusively redeemed by Christ the Son. And as if those two weren't enough, you were effectually, effectively sealed by God's Holy Spirit. You were called sovereignly. As a king calls a peasant into his court, there was no denying the call. You were called to be born again and have now been preserved for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, you and I who were dead... ...in our sins and trespasses totally depraved... ...have been saved by the sovereign, omnipotent hand of the triune God. Not by works lest any man should boast, but by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's word alone... ...all to his glory alone. Paul will tell us as he transitions into chapter 2 and 3 that we who were doubly alienated, that is, there was a chasm between us, doubly between God and between fellow man, between God's people, have now received not a singular but a double reconciliation. You, Gentiles, you, pagans, you who stood condemned in your sins before a holy and fearsome God, you who had no place, no inheritance among God's people, Israel, God has now through his son Christ Jesus called you close to himself and made you a full heir, a full recipient of all his covenantal promises. Now, what Paul is going to do here beginning in chapter 4, what we're going to look at today is he is going to remind us and inform us that there are some new standards that come along with this new society. We have been chosen, redeemed, sealed, and reconciled because of God's calling and for God's purposes. And so now he's going to tell us what those purposes are. And so a question stands for us today that we are hopefully going to answer in the text. How are we to conduct ourselves in this new society? How are we to conduct ourselves in this new society? What are the rules that come along? You know, it's funny. We're God's covenant people. This is his covenant that he's brought us into. And there's some benefits, but there's also some rules. It's funny because I immediately think back to probably the worst example that can stand for this. Because this is a positive thing. This is a good thing. But what I'm about to say is not. Me and Carly, a few years ago, had moved from the coast back to Clinton... 
and we, we moved into a rental house that we loved. It was, it was perfect for our uh, small growing family. It was a nice neighborhood, close to the school, close to my favorite coffee shop. It was perfect. And we found out after we had already signed the lease that it was in a very strict covenantal community uh, with a uh, strong-handed HOA. Some of you might be fans of an HOA. Uh, I, I grew up in the sticks uh, where we could do what we wanted, when we wanted. It, it didn't sit with me well. But it's an example an HOA is an example for us of a covenantal community. There's perks, there's benefits. I didn't have to mow my own grass, that was nice. But there was also rules. There was regulations that I had to abide by as one who lived as part of that covenantal community. It's no different here for us in God's covenantal community. And so here's what we're going to see in God's word this morning from Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. That we have been called and commanded to walk worthy of our calling in three ways. By first, becoming who we are. Becoming who we are. Secondly, by loving in action. And third and finally, by striving for unity. And so first, Paul commands us that we are to walk worthy of our calling by becoming who you are. That's a little confusing, isn't it? Becoming who you are. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's a little bit clunky wording. Paul is saying, I want you to walk in accordance with this calling. But you've already been called to it. You're already a part of it. You already belong to it. Paul has spent three chapters, everything he's written so far, dedicated to who Christ has made us into. What Christ has formed you into, changed you into, namely this new society of saints. And now he wants us to act like it. He says, Christ has made you a saint, act like a saint. Christ has made you holy, act holy. Christ has called you to love and unity and all these good things, live like it. Basically, what Paul is saying here is really simple when you get down to the bare bones of it. He's saying, don't be people who just talk the talk. Walk the walk. Don't be a hypocrite, so to speak. You've been given all these benefits that come along with the inheritance in Christ. Now live like it. This isn't exclusive to Paul. Consider what James tells us in chapter 122 of his letter. Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word. He tells us again in chapter 127, James does, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And it's not how many systematic theologies you can have on your bookshelf. It's not how many catechism answers you can recite on a given notice. It's not any of that. As much as we like that, as good as that is, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to do something. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. At the end of the day, it's not what we know. It's not what we say. It's what we do with what we know. Do we walk the walk? Paul is telling us to walk worthy by becoming who Christ Jesus has already made us. It's like in the Old Testament when God would instruct the Israelites long before they had taken possession of the promised land... He would tell them, it's yours. He would say to Israel over and over and over again, it's your land, take it. 
It's your land. It, it belongs to you. You are the rightful recipients. Now go and do something about it. Or it's like when I oftentimes have to tell Liam, be a big brother. Liam, be a big brother. Liam, you're the big brother. Act like it. I'm not telling him to be or do something that he isn't already. He is, as a matter of fact, a big brother. That is, that is factual. That is unchanging. He is a big brother, but sometimes he doesn't act like it. Right? Uh, sometimes uh, when he sees Sammy uh, fussing and, and doing things he shouldn't be because he doesn't understand yet, he takes that as an uh, opportunity to do the same stuff. And I have to lovingly remind him, now Liam... You're the big brother. Act like it. We need to understand this, brothers and sisters, that we must, we must live lives that are in accordance with our doctrine. We must live lives that, are, that match up to our beliefs. I'm sure you've heard, just, just as I've had, that more and more people are saying it, that they don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. You, you ever been told that? Family members that tell me that all the time. Well, we go to church. It's not that we, you know, we love the Lord. Um, you know, it's, it's great and all, but it's, that place is just full of hypocrites. To some extent, it's an excuse, and we know that. People, unregenerate people will find any excuse to not gather and worship before the Lord. But it's not, it's not always untrue, is it? Sadly, as we look at the state of the church in America specifically, it's true oftentimes. That the church is full, often, too often in America, with hypocrites. That is to say with people who say the right things and who know the right things, but whose lives do not remotely match up with these beliefs and sayings. The fact of the matter is that all the sermons we hear, all the scripture we memorize, all the theology we read, and songs we sing are utterly and completely meaningless if we don't do something with it. We have to do something with it. To put it another way, as, as we look at how Paul has divided this letter to the church at Ephesus, you know, chapters 1 through 3 versus chapters 4 through 6, Ephesians 1 through 3, as much as we love those verses about predestination, Ephesians 1 through 3 doesn't matter if we don't do Ephesians 4 through 6. God has done Ephesians 1 through 3 for us so that we will, in obedience and accordance to his word, live out Ephesians 4 through 6. They have to match up. This is prevalent, all too prevalent for the culture that we find ourselves in America, a culture of what we could call nominal Christianity, which, spoiler alert, isn't a real thing. There is no such thing as a nominal Christian. There is no such thing as nominal Christianity. It doesn't exist. Nominal Christianity is not Christianity at all. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Maybe you've heard that term before. It's people who use the right words, who say they worship God and Jesus, but when they describe the God and Jesus that they worship, he doesn't look anything like the God and Jesus of the Bible. It's people who call themselves Christians, but when we look at their lives, it doesn't match up at all. So ask yourselves, is my Christianity true? Do I walk the walk? Do I not just sound like a Christian, but do I look like a Christian? Do I do the things that Christians are supposed to do? We walk worthy by becoming who we already are in Christ Jesus. 
But, but how exactly do we do that? What does that look like? Well, Paul tells us in our second and third point in verses 2 and 3, we see secondly that we do that by loving in action. By loving in action. Paul tells us in verse 2 that we're to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so what does this walking worthy look like? We, we are to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And so let's break those down. He tells us first that we're to walk in humility. We're to walk in humility. What does it mean to be humble? I, I think with a lot of these words, at least for me, I'm, I'm a visual person. I don't necessarily readily think of a definition, but I can think of people that immediately come to mind. Like when, when I hear humble... There's, there's people that have been in my life that I think of, pictures of that, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But one way for us to figure out what something is is to consider what the opposite of it is. What's the opposite of humility? It's pride. It's pride and arrogance. And so we could put this in the negative that Paul is telling us we aren't supposed to walk in those things, in pride or arrogance. You know, it's... It's a whole sermon for a whole other time, but it says a lot about our culture that we have a whole month dedicated to one of those things. It, it speaks volumes. What does pride and arrogance sound like? It sounds like the person who says out loud or, or says to themselves, I'm smarter than, I'm better than, I'm older than, I'm wiser than, I'm more experienced than, I have a better education than, I've been a Christian longer than. Paul says, don't walk in any of that. We're to walk in humility. Many translations translate this word not as humble, but as lowly, as lowliness. So Paul commands us that all Christians, regardless of, of how much money you have in your bank account, regardless of what family you come from, we are to walk in lowliness. Not considering ourselves better than anyone else. We're insisting on our way and preferences. And if, and if we're going to be honest, that one's hard. That is extremely difficult. I think the best exercise that we can do to help ourselves understand those traits, each of these that we're going to look at, is to consider Christ. What, what better example has God given us in his word than Christ himself? Consider Christ in his humility and his lowliness, brothers and sisters. Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11 tells us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, let's pause there. Christ, the second person of the eternity, e eternally God. There was never a time where, where the Father was, we were talking about this with our students this morning, there was never a time where the Father was that the Son was not. Everything that God is, Jesus is. He is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. He is not lesser than in any way, shape, or form. And so Paul is telling us in Philippians here, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he, he's God. And all that comes along with it, all that omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence, everything that it is to be God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and let it, the record show, not born in the likeness of an earthly king, 
which would have been humbling enough for the God of the universe. And not even as, as, a, as, a, as a poor person or a, or a peasant, but as a baby of poor people. Christ, God Almighty, who formed the very womb that Mary had, was born of it. That is humility. That is lowliness. Christ, who is the only reason the fields grew the grass which could be harvested to make straw and hay for the bed in the manger, was laid down in it. Christ, who at the very moment of his human birth, was giving Mary the very breath which she breathed. That is humility. That is lowliness. That God would become like us. And it gets more, being found in human form, he continued to humble himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, and a rough one at that, death on a cross. So look to Christ. It says we're to walk in humility, but also in gentleness. So what's the opposite of being gentle? It's being rough. And so we can put this in the negative. Paul is saying, don't be a rough person. Don't be a rough person. Now we can and should share and proclaim rough truths. We don't have an option on that one. We can and should and are commanded to proclaim rough truths. But we are to do so without being rough people. There's a difference. Now men, my brothers and fathers in the faith, we can and should be able to endure rough situations and conditions. Rough work, rough lives. But we are to do so without ourselves becoming rough people. Paul commands us, men and women, to walk in gentleness. What some translations would render meekness. Now that doesn't mean weakness. Christ was anything but weak or a pushover. We're not to be doormats. But to make it simple and short, to cut to the point, he's basically saying don't be a jerk. You're going to share hard truths. People are not going to like you for that, but you don't have to be a jerk about it and make it worse than it already is. The message we are commanded to proclaim is rough and offensive enough to unregenerate ears on its own. Basically what Paul is saying, don't be guilty of adding to it through your own rough personality. And we, we, we can all very quickly, if we're not careful, right, a, a person comes to mind. The takeaway here is to not think, oh, I know exactly who he's talking about. He's talking about us. Each of us have rough character traits. Each of us have aspects of our personality which are rough. And if you think otherwise, ask your spouse and they'll let you know super quick. We're to walk in gentleness. And so we again consider Christ. Christ, who was no pushover. Christ, who was not weak. Christ was not a doormat. As a carpenter, Jesus was no stranger to rough work. He wouldn't have had a soft handshake, so to speak. He was bold and passionate and shared very rough, hard, abrasive truths. But when he did, it was not his personality or demeanor that was rough, but the truths which he spoke forth. We should aim and try our best to do the same. Paul continues, we are to walk with patience. With patience. Now what could be considered the opposite of patience? I think of pushiness. 
It's someone who's pushy. And pushy, impatient people think thoughts like, well, I've had to deal with that attitude from that person for too long. Today's the day. I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore. A pushy, impatient person thinks thoughts like, well, they just need to get it together. I'm not dealing with it. It's not my problem. Some translations render this word, and I think this is a much better rendering. This is what the older translations render it, as a long-suffering. That's a word picture. It is literally to suffer long. To suffer long. We are to walk in patience. We are to be long-suffering, steadfast, and not just when it's easy, but especially in times of struggle, in illness, in suffering, in difficulty, in annoyance and frustration. Even when it comes at personal offense. That's why it's called long-suffering. It's not called long joy. It implies there's going to be some hard aspects to this. And so again, we consider Christ. Consider, brothers and sisters, how patient the Lord has been with us. How patient he's been with you. How long-suffering does Christ continue to be with your sins? Enough that after thousands of years of sending prophet after prophet after prophet, dealing with complaint and rebellion, complaint and rebellion, he got to a point where he sent himself and spent 30 years on this earth and died and rose again in patience and long-suffering for you, brothers and sisters. This is why the word tells us he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He tells us that we are to walk with tolerance, that is to be forgiving and understanding. Now let me be clear, that does not mean tolerance as the current culture considers it. We're all too familiar with how our culture uses that word these days, which basically just means we should be okay with anything and everything that anyone wants to do or say or be. That's not what the word means at all when it uses that word. This never means, biblically, tolerance of sins. This is specifically, Paul is saying, tolerance towards our brothers and sisters, primarily in Christ. This means not thinking and talking and saying things like, well, you don't know what I've had to deal with with this person. You don't know them. Remember, the word literally means to suffer with. It implies some hardship. Again, consider Christ. How tolerant the Lord has been of you. How tolerant has your king been with you on a daily basis. And lastly, he tells us we're to walk in love. Remember, John 13, 35, Jesus himself tells us that by this we will know, all people will know that you are my disciples. And again, not how much we know, not what we say. It's if you have love for one another. Are we at New Covenant of people who are marked by that kind of love? When people, when visitors come and they sit with us and they talk with us and they, they spend time around us, can they see that love? Can they feel that love? I, I praise the Lord that, that our doctrine is right and correct. And I also praise the Lord that I'm part of a church that has love for one another. Let's continue in it and let's strive to make it better day in and day out. And again, consider Christ, who despite all your sin, all your shortcomings loved you so much that he literally died for you. So we walk worthy by becoming who we are in Christ, which we do so in turn by loving in action. And third and finally, in conclusion, by striving for unity. By striving for unity. Paul tells us in verse 3 that we are to walk worthy by being, quote, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is the unity that Paul talks about here? Too often, I think we focus on the aspects of unity that don't really matter at the end of the day. Uh, Usually when we think of unity, we're really thinking in fleshly, unbiblical terms. I'm going to be honest. Uh, uh, Unity in things like football, music preference, school, skin color, social status, political party, nationality. It's not that these things don't bear some importance and weight, but this is not the unity which Paul speaks of. Not remotely, not even a little bit. We talk about these aspects of unity and we focus on these aspects of unity and we fight wars and get in fights over and die over this type of unity. Meanwhile, the whole time we're neglecting the unity of the spirit which Paul here speaks of. A unity among brothers and sisters in Christ. Oneness with those who share a common spirit in Christ Jesus. Regardless of color or socioeconomic status or or nationality or any of these barriers or boundaries. This is the new society which Christ has given us and called us to. It's one that looks drastically different than the forms of unity which we talk about in the world. Striving for unity does not mean that we overlook or neglect doctrine or beliefs for the supposed sake of unity. We all are aware of denominations who have been guilty of that, and we've seen how it goes. Striving for unity doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to sin for the sake of that supposed unity. Absolutely not. Wrong is wrong, and right is right, and any supposed unity gained by the neglect of truth or the acceptance of sinfulness is not a unity of any worth or value to the Lord our God. And it's not a unity which will stand the test of time. One cannot possibly take this to mean that we should overlook sin or accept sin because Paul will go on to spend the rest of this chapter and the rest of this book commanding us and urging us to holiness in Christ, in obedience to his commandments and hatred of sin. This unity is a work done chiefly and ultimately by the Spirit only possible through and by his aid. This also necessitates it, as some translations put it, the Christian, is a good word, endeavoring to keep unity among the brothers and sisters in Christ. Meaning, just because you have it today, it's not guaranteed that it's going to be here tomorrow. It is a constant fight. It is a constant battle, a striving and endeavoring to keep up this unity among our brothers and sisters in Christ. Matthew Henry put it this way. We must do our utmost. If others will quarrel with us, we must take all possible care not to quarrel with them. If others will despise and hate us, we must not despise and hate them. God's word is telling us that in the goal of unity and peace... With love, rejecting bitterness, and the ever-present aid of the Holy Spirit that we are to strive towards these things. And so, a very simple application is we can ask ourselves, do we, are we actively endeavoring and striving for unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Think here in these four walls of New Covenant Presbyterian Church. Are we a people who are marked by striving for unity? Despite other boundaries, despite other differences, 
is it markably seen here in our congregation that Christ has called us together as one people, one body, one bride. And so Paul tells us we are to walk worthy of our calling by first becoming who we are, secondly loving in action, and third and finally by striving for unity. Would you join me and pray with me as we ask the Lord to help us to do exactly that? Almighty God, you are good, you are perfect, and so is your word. We, we thank you for it. We thank you that you've given us this document, Father, to, to help us to know what it is we're supposed to do, to help us know what it is we're supposed to know. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us as we go throughout this week, as we leave this place, to, to go out and walk worthy. To walk worthy of the calling to which you have called us in Christ Jesus. You have made us holy. Help us to be holy. You have made us one. Help us to live as one. Father, help us to become who we are in Christ Jesus. Help us to love especially our brothers and sisters here at New Covenant in action. Even if it comes at personal sacrifice. Help us to strive for unity. All for Christ's glory. All for Christ's kingdom. It's in his name we pray. Amen.